This episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm excited to announce our podcast show is part of this year's Dell Technologies Small Business Virtual Conference that kicked off May 10th. Small businesses are ready to thrive again and looking for resources to rise to the challenge. That's why Dell Technologies has assembled an all-star lineup of podcasters for the third year in a row to create a virtual conference to share advice and inspiration for small businesses. Whether you're still working remotely or back together again, Let Dell Technologies help safeguard your business with modern devices and Windows 11 Pro. Search Dell Technologies Small Business Podference on odyssey.com, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts starting May 10th. And if you missed it, be sure to download our custom episodes that aired May 12th and May 20th. Live from the Fayetteville Public Library, it's the Stacking Benjamin Show. Today, we're live from the great state of Arkansas, which isn't just the home of Tyson Chicken and a little company called Walmart, but, of course, a fintech firm called AcreTrader. On today's special Dell Podference episode, we're diving deep into how a company is built with founder Carter Malloy. We'll ask him where the dream began, missteps along the path, how the company grew to be the successful investing platform it is today, and Carter's thoughts on the future of investing. No trivia, no headlines, just Joe and Carter and the epic tale of a little, check that, quickly growing company that could. And now, the guy who didn't go to the University of Arkansas, but his money did, honorary Razorback, Joe Salciha. Hello there, Fayetteville. Thank you so much for joining us, everybody. I am Joe Salcija, Average Joe Money on Twitter. This is so weird being live in front of a bunch of Razorbacks. We got a bunch of Razorbacks here. You know, and he was right. My money did go here. My daughter graduated from uh, the fine university that's right up the street. And uh, when he said my money went here, it's fun. this university is not just a fantastic place to get an education, but even though it's incredibly affordable, I, I got to say, I did feel like every time I wrote one of those checks, I felt like 
am I buying a wing of a building or am I just trying to put my daughter through school? Anybody putting kids through school or put yourself through school feel the same way? Yeah, yeah. Well, we're not here to talk about that today. We're here to talk about a career trajectory. You know, it's funny. There's lots of people in our audience that are either thinking about starting a business, they have a business, and you think you're alone when it comes to business. And yet, every time we talk to entrepreneurs, we find out that most entrepreneurs have many of the same feelings. They have many of the same struggles that they're dealing with. In a second, we're going to dive into those with one founder. But first... This segment is sponsored by Dell Technology Small Business Virtual Podference, which starts May 10th. Whether you're still working remotely or back together again, let Dell Technologies help safeguard your business with modern devices and Windows 11 Pro. All right, Fayetteville, you ready for us to bring on our guest? <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, this is the man behind a company that is very quickly growing. They're a company that I, I, I feel very lucky that I've known about this company since very close to the beginning. When I was first approached by somebody that knew about this company, I thought, why aren't there other companies doing this? Why aren't more companies investing in farmland? This gentleman is somebody that thought the same thoughts I was having. So let's meet him right now. Ladies and gentlemen, the founder of Acre Trader, Carter Malloy. How are you, man? Wonderful. You and I have talked, what, maybe three times before? But this is the first time we're face-to-face. You're a good-looking dude. <laughs> My wife's out there somewhere. Make sure she hears that. <laughs> you ready to talk about your career trajectory? Let's do it. Let's talk about the start, because a lot of people think that entrepreneurship is in somebody's genes. And really, for you, I think that's actually a little bit true, because your mom was an entrepreneur? That's correct. My, my mom ran a business growing up. What, what type of a business was it? It was a candy business, which is both the best and worst business possible for a kid to be around all day long. Candy? What type of candy? All of the kinds. So was she like a distributor? Did she... That's right. She had a, she had a candy business that had done well, and then she began franchising that and, and teaching other people how to build businesses. How big did that business get? Uh, there were hundreds of them. Hundreds of them. Okay. And I would imagine that's an up and down business. I can't imagine the business of candy is easy all the time. The business of candy is actually great. It was the, this was sort of like later in life, uh, call it high school. Leading up to that, there were both my mom and dad were entrepreneurs and there are lots of uh, swing years, we'll call them. Well, I want to ask about then your dad, because if your mom is an entrepreneur and things are sometimes up and down, I bet your dad had something really steady that he did. Yeah, farming, super steady. <laughs> I, had a, I had a client when I was a financial planner that ran a farm and said, uh, what did the farmer do when they won the million dollar lottery? They farmed it till it was gone. Which, by the way, they were doing very well, and a lot of farmers do incredibly well. And we'll talk about how you guys work with farmers to help them do well. But farming also has some up and downs. It does. It, it creates some challenging years. And uh, my dad also had a lot of wild ideas and entrepreneurial ventures. And so, yeah, we had some, some fun times and some, oh gosh, uh, moments along the way. What do you mean by that? Dad had some entrepreneurial ideas. Well, he, he's kind of an interesting guy. So he had an uh, undergrad in mathematics, then did his, his a master's degree in geology, was big into, while well, he was always in farming and groundwater, uh, was, was really big into drilling for oil, as an example. One of those wild ideas, and that went really well. Drilling for oil on the farm? Uh, actually, up here in, in northwest Arkansas. He was, really? He was the first, he had a few partners, the first people to find uh, shale gas up here. 
and it was a big, big deal in a very positive way, and then dry, 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 and yeah. then you know we everything was going. So I can't imagine your mom and dad ever fought about money or, <laughs> or had any conflicts at all. They got along pretty well, actually. That's good. Yeah, two entrepreneurs. Now you, though, I understand, were like the perfect model kid growing up. Yeah. Yeah, sure. <laughs> sure. I, I see my children out there, and they're four and six years old, so I might withhold some of those stories until they're a little <laughs> bit older. Well, I have it on the sheet that you wrote me as we were prepping for this, that you were a wild child. Sorry. Can you explain what wild child looked like, young Carter? Anna Kate, Vivian, close your ears. <laughs> Earmuffs. Um, you know, I, I, uh, I didn't have tons of motivation in the right directions at, at, at points. My, my, what do you think that was? I found school to be not fun. You know, it was, it was boring, and so I cut up in class a lot, and... Uh, Got in a lot of trouble. But this is interesting because on one hand, you find school not fun, and yet you skipped a grade at one point. I did. I moved up a grade. My, my older sister is wildly intelligent, maybe the only way I could describe her. And so pretty early on, my, my parents in the school realized that this, is, this kid's special. And she actually ended up graduating high school and going to college when she was 12. Tw- in college when she's 12? Yeah, it's actually a terrible idea. Don't send your kids to college that young. What's what I was thinking, because uh-huh. Carter, even when, when I was prepping for this and I found out that you had uh, skipped a grade, you know, everybody talks about emotionally how difficult that can be for a kid. All of a sudden you're with kids that are further along physically than you are. Some of the, you know, the development stuff going on is different. I imagine that's hard, but college at 12... Yeah, that was hard on her. And so they, uh, ultimately, I, I, as well, they're like, oh, maybe this kid's smart too. And they had me take a bunch of tests and come to find out I was not my sister. Um, <laughs> it was, uh, you were the diamond in a rough that was mostly rough? Yeah, I was the, yeah. So uh, ended up moving up a grade. And, and I was already young for my school anyway. I was a summer birthday. Uh, so that actually did create a, a lot of challenges as a kid uh, that I think the bigger success for me was being able to navigate that, being a 16-year-old coming to college of trying to be normal and, you know, I was 16, I think I was 14 years old. And so I uh, met my wife the first night of college and was like, hey, let's go on a date. She's like, you are a child. <laughs> <laughs> so it took, it took a while. But, uh, you had, wait a minute. You met her the first day of college. I did. Well, we're skipping way ahead, but tell me this story. Met her the first night of college. That was the most beautiful person I'd ever seen. And come to find out, she's really cool, too. And so, But did again, you, like, sit next to her in a class? Like, did you walk up to her on the, no. you know, where you at the student union, just walk up to her, this creepy kid that's younger than everybody else there? <laughs> I, I might have mentioned earlier, I did not do great in school. It was at a party. Uh, <laughs> it was that first night of college, big party, you know, just like the second night of college and the third night. And, and so we, we met, and I was just smitten with her. And, yeah, she's like, you're, you're a great friend, but you're a child. And so we were best friends all through college and then began dating at the end of college. And you just stuck around and stuck <laughs> around. Persistence. I was, I'm the rare escape the friend zone That's guy. the lesson. Yeah, yes. Persistence did pay Pers- off. Persistence pays. I want to get back, though, to, to skipping the grade for just a second longer because I know there's, you know there's parents thinking about this all the time. I've got this smart kid. I, I think it might be a good idea. Do you think that was the right decision? If you had that to do over again, would you, would you have done that? Or would you have just continued on the way that uh, most people do? Probably not. I was hungry for it because, I, again, I didn't love school. Yeah. Uh, so I thought, oh, this is like a cheat code to, to move along a little faster. But it, it's certainly for my sister as well. Like that, That's a pretty extreme example. But no, I, I don't think it's a 
a brilliant idea unless the circumstances are correct. With entrepreneur parents, I got to imagine that Carter Malloy growing up might have had an entrepreneurship venture or two during high school years, maybe even during college years. Were you starting companies even back then? Yeah, we'll, we'll skip over those. I, I mentioned again earlier that I was not a great student, so, uh, but I did after college. I was uh, touring in a band, and to support that band, we converted our van to run on uh, grease, like unused vegetable oil, and saved a ton of money. And so the bass player and I are like, oh, this is a cool idea. We'll stand up a business. And that actually succeeded. It was a good business and paid the bills enough for us to travel around and play music. Then I was like, ooh, I'm a great business person. I'll start some more businesses. And the next two were uh, dumpster fires is the best way I could describe them. Yeah, yeah I actually did some homework on those. And I, want, no. I, want, I wanted to ask you specifically about the dumpster fires. In, in one of your bios, I saw you had a business focused on internet marketing. Yes. So it was a business to, it was a early social network. This is like 2005, 2006, maybe. I'd grown up around this franchising idea, and so the idea was to connect franchisees and franchisors on this platform, and that was a big failure in testing product market fit before actually launching something. Like, oh, this is so brilliant, this is gonna be a huge business, and built this thing and spent savings on it and put it out there and never made a dollar of revenue. How much money did you spend developing that business? Thousands, maybe $10,000, which yeah, was wow. like a, you know, for a person in their early 20s, was like most of it. <laughs> yeah, and then the sustainable fuel tech is, is what you were already referring to. And, and, and that's, that's from, from being in a band. That's right. That was, that was the genesis of that. But I got to guess, though, you know, for somebody that runs a business like you do, where there's been so many times at Acre Trader where you've had to be at the seat of your pants, right? You're not sure what's going to happen the next week, the next month, especially in the early days. I have to imagine that these early failures were really great lessons. Yes, they were. They're also a little bit scarring, right? Like, oh gosh, this may not work. And so it certainly drives a, a little bit of negative mentality as well. But the positive lesson from that is like, it is absolutely okay to fail. And it is absolutely okay to make mistakes. And that was the, the big carryover into investing career for me for a long time. And, and today in our business as well, we, we celebrate mistakes and we, we cheer people that stand up and admit when they, when they have those failures. Going back to college for just a moment, you said you weren't great at school, but you were a physics major. So if you're thinking about a band, meeting your wife at a party, physics, I don't know a lot, Carter, but I do know that that's not the world's easiest major. Like, how, how, how do you choose physics? I liked it. I went to the business school and I got like a C in accounting. I was like, this crap is boring. Uh, and I'd taken some physics courses. I was pre-med before that. And uh, I just liked the subject matter. And, and so for me, it was... And again, was not a straight A student, yeah. but it was really fun to explore just problem solving is ultimately what physics is. And it, it sounds daunting, but it's actually like pretty straightforward. It's numbers. You talk about numbers. problem solving. Do you use that today? I mean, I, I would have to imagine that that kind of helps your thought process today, working through A, B, C, D. That's totally fair. I mean, the last time I solved an equation was 18 years ago you know, <laughs> in, in school, but, but that... Uh, sort of methodical approach to problem solving is, is helpful. And again, I'm, I constantly still fail at that, right? It's a lifelong learning experience, but that was certainly helpful. What would you tell people about uh, school in the role of an entrepreneur then, seeing that you've said several times here already that school was not your forte? School for the entrepreneur, what are your thoughts? Uh, the, the, 
School is a place to learn, to socialize, and, and to, for me to have fun. I, I, like I said, I was a bad student, but I had a lot of fun in school. I studied a lot outside of class. I, I read a ton and was practicing music every day for most of the days. So I still tried to be very productive with my time. At, at that point, the endeavor for me was pursuing music as opposed to being entrepreneurial at that time, though looking back, I'm, I'm sure I would have enjoyed doing that also. I would be remiss if I didn't ask you what instrument you played. At the time, I was playing lead guitar uh, and a little bit of keyboards. Uh, drums is my primary pursuit today. So you still play? I do. I do. I, I like to play and uh, produce music as well. So we, we have an Acre Trader band. We should. There's there's actually a lot of people in our. We should. We could have had the, like an, an opening act here, Carter. What are we doing, <laughs> Michael? We didn't think that through, man. Let's talk briefly about you and technology growing up, because as you know, this is part of the Dell Podference collection of podcasts. Technology clearly is in your life all the time. It's a big part of what you do at AcreTrader. Tell me about Carter as a kid growing up. Were you somebody that was in tech, interested in tech? Did you use technology much growing up? I did a lot. I really enjoyed it a lot. Uh, at the time, this is like late 90s in high school, you, they had these TI-83 calculators, oh, yeah. which was a powerhouse calculator yes. at the time. This thing was a, a beauty. And you can tell we're finance nerds, by the way. We're like, oh, yeah, that's the calculator. Ooh. And, uh, can you describe the calculator slowly, please? Well, I, I got into uh, making games on them, again, as a distraction from class. And, and so got into programming a little bit and, and understanding how to build things on a computer and then transfer them onto this little tiny calculator so that I could play games in class, basically. But, when did you make your first website? Uh... I made one in college, but I'm, I'm trying to remember the year. Probably 2001. What was it about? Jokes. It was about jokes? Yeah, yeah. We won't talk about that one. <laughs> Dad jokes? I've, I've been scrubbing a lot of the internet for a lot of years, too. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll bury that part. Maybe we'll, we'll, maybe we'll clean that one out in post, <laughs> right, of this conversation. Uh, I want to ask about then mentors growing up. Before we get to Acre Trader. There must have been some people in your life that really kind of molded the leader that you are today. Tell me about some of those people, either in school or maybe with the band, people with the companies that you worked for before Acre Trader. My dad certainly is a big one. Uh, we, we still speak most days. Uh, he's pretty risk on, right? Lived in Costa Rica for six years growing bananas, has been in multiple plane crashes. And so I think that, that sort of taught me like, get out and have fun and enjoy life. I think he... Wait a minute, your dad's been in plane crashes and you're like, let's go do, let's, let's go fly more? <laughs> yeah, well, you, you get a couple, like, you know, what's going to happen next time? I'll probably live again. Like, <laughs> uh, he, at one point to me, said, I, God blessed me with being curious, therefore I've had a, a really full life. Always pushed us as kids to get out, to go travel, go have fun and learn and enjoy life and not turn on the TV. Who else? Uh, partner in the fund that I used to work at. So one, one of uh, my partners in the investment fund, uh, a guy named Clinton, who could not be, we could not be more different human beings, like, like in, in every possible regard. But he's, today, he's, remains one of my absolute best friends. And he, he's a, just a brilliant guy, but he's incredibly well-tempered. And I, I'm not. I, I tend to be a little more volatile and... Uh, you know, he was never shaken by investments when, when we were investing professionally and things would whip around and he just wouldn't care. 
And if he was convicted, he would stick to that. And, and ultimately, really helped me improve. I still need a lot more improvement to uh, ultimately stick to your guns and, and be confident when you make a decision and, and lean in. I want to talk about those jobs. We talked about the entrepreneurship part, but really out of college, you went to work in the investment world. Tell me a little bit about that experience. Yeah, I spent seven years writing research on companies that built data analytics, uh, that built property technology, so, um, and fintech. So a lot of the things that overlap with my job today. Then after that, I spent five years at a, a long, short equity fund out in San Francisco. So we were investing about a billion dollars in all kinds of companies, but I, I was primarily focused again on technology and a little bit of consumer and industrial. Why did you move from that first company to the second one? Uh, risk on. You know, I, I joined it before they had raised a dollar of assets, and it's like, hey, it's my opportunity to go be a partner in something really, really cool and really unique that I wanted to explore, and I absolutely love the people putting it together. And in that moment, I was sort of panicking, leaving this great job as a, a managing director at this cool company. And one of my coworkers told me, it's like, make every important decision as your 80-year-old self. When you look back when you're 80, will you regret doing this? And at that moment, and I remember where I was standing and having this conversation, it's like, well, this is a no-brainer then. Like, worst case, I go out here and we fall flat on our face, we fail, like, I can probably still get another job and I'll have a great time and learn a bunch along the way. I love this idea of having a North Star, and I love the lesson, I think, from when you talk about the partner at the fund being a mentor of yours. I think too often we surround ourselves with people that are like us instead of people that challenge us. 100%. It's something we focus on within our, within our business quite a bit. Used to, in, in hiring, uh, we would have these tests, like the airport test. You hear about this a lot in, a, in an interview, where the people of the company say, well, would you prefer to be stuck at an airport for 24 hours with this person locked down? The problem with that is, is you then end up surrounding yourselves with people that are just like you, and people that think like you, and people you agree with. And that's actually a really bad way to build a business. Instead of challenging yourself to sit down and go, you know what, this person is like, are we going to go like be absolute bros on the weekends and, and have beers? Like, probably not. But like, wow, this person is fascinating and completely different than me and has really cool ideas. And so we talk about company culture within our business, this notion of hiring people that are additive to your culture, right? So not just fit, but, but they're different in a certain way. Diversity of thought, if you will. And, and really, yes, we, we really, really champion that idea of being different. I want to get back to technology with that answer, but I got to imagine when you're scaling a company, you must have some technology using that helps you identify people that are different in different areas. Like how do you figure out how to put these right people in the right spot? We do. So we, we have some great folks running HR for us and, and they've got really cool software that certainly helps us, applicant tracking software, so it's called ATS, that, that helps us to score individually so that, so that we don't, like the worst thing we could do as a company is if each person, you interview somebody, they, they come through an interview roughly with a dozen folks internally at our, at our business. The worst thing you could do is have those people get together and, and whip around with biases. And so instead we use this software to keep us independent and neutral. So we each leave ratings and, you know, hey, this person scored great on creativity, they great on humility, self-awareness. Uh, the things that we really value as a business. So uh, that, yeah, that certainly helps. It's funny, even in our small business, we started, uh, there's only eight of us uh, versus a lot more acre trader. But for our last round of hiring, we used technology to help us. And it was amazing. It was, it was incredible how much better the people were that came through because of the fact that I, like you, I'm naturally biased. I'm naturally like, I like you. Let's go <laughs> hang out. You know, uh, uh, yeah. 
I want to ask you a couple more questions before we take our break. Let's talk about Acre Trader and the making of the very beginning day. I'm really curious. You're working at the fund in San Francisco, I'm imagining. How does the idea for Acre Trader begin? Where's the seed, to use an Acre Trader term? <laughs> How does the seed of this, that cracked me up, not them, <laughs> crack nobody. There's going to be a lot more of those peeps, so hang on. Uh, where did the seed of this idea come from? Farm puns are impossible to avoid. They're everywhere. <laughs> the, uh, so my, in the background, my dad and I have been buying and selling farmland, and, and it's this fascinating market, right? There's trillions of dollars of this stuff. When did you start doing this? mid 2000s so probably uh, around the recession something like that okay so you've been out of college maybe four or five years that's that's correct okay so I had a great career and um, I started messing around and, and just I'd always been in love with land it was just a, a thing this sense of place of being outdoors and and having a place to be and so we'd been buying and selling land for for years can I stop you for a second because I'm very interested in this your first deal. You got to remember your first deal. Who came to the table with your first deal? Was it you or your dad? My dad. He and a buddy. He said, hey, we've got, we're putting this thing together. It's totally screwed up and real ugly, and there's all this hair on it, but it's pretty fascinating uh, from a financial standpoint. Fantastic. It's a horrible deal. Let's do it. Yeah. Well, it was a, what we call in value investing, dumpster diving. Okay. Right? Which is uh, investing in businesses that are really messed up. Yes. But have lots of potential. We can turn them around. That's right. Yes. That's right. Tons of upside. Right. How, how did that work? incredibly well. Like, like, oh my gosh, what's going on? I'm over here spending 12, 14 hours every day and, and most weekends grinding, trying to find alpha in public market investing with this concentrated investing style. And over here on the side, like for fun, as, a, as an interesting investment, generating like very material investment returns. And that's ultimately what got me looking at this asset class and zooming out and, and realizing like, wow, there's, it's not just like cool. It's not just the land that I love, but there's, there's actually a real financial story here around portfolio diversification and the potential to hedge against inflation and long-term risk-adjusted returns and non-correlation of the stock market. Like The story just kept going on and on about this. But it's also something in your backyard that you've got a long, familiar relationship with. And that's really how, how it started, right? So I'm living in San Francisco. I'm clearly like a little more redneck than most of the folks around me. And so I had this uh, distinct investing advantage that I did not usually have uh, being from, from Arkansas in that I knew these places, right? And, and had friends in San Francisco that wanted to invest in land as well. But online, it's like, well, there, there's nothing here. How could that possibly be? Like, and I'm, I'm realizing I'm buying land, like getting flyers in the mail, quite, quite literally, which we still do today. One of the primary ways that land is bought and sold. So you're getting flyers from farmers, uh, from farmers and farm brokers. We're talking about like multi-million dollar parcels. Like that's the marketing behind that. Via a flyer, uh, a multi-million dollar deal via flyer. It is difficult to explain how prevalent this is. That's an idea where somebody might need some technology <laughs> right there. If only there was like this company that would... <laughs> if there were. You know, there's this notion of information asymmetry in, in investing markets, right? And that is that you have a distinct advantage relative to the market because you can see something they don't. In public companies, you work really, really hard to build a little bit of an edge, to build a mosaic picture of a business. But if you get a distinct edge, often that's called inside information, and you go to jail for it. Yeah. Right? So right. Uh, that's not a, not a good thing. Um, <laughs> Thanks for defining that, by the way. <laughs> jail bad. <laughs> in private assets, that's not the case. And, and in farmland, you don't even have to really work that hard to find the, the information advantage. It's just that 
there is no information, so therefore the old adage of in the land of the blind, the man with one eye is king, rang really true here, that you can go out and dig in and understand this asset at a fundamental level and, and do real financial due diligence in relatively short amounts of time uh, to the whatever month or so we'd spend in public company investing. So I became pretty obsessed with investing in farmland on the side. I'm coming around. This is a long-winded story. <laughs> no, it's all right. Story. I keep stopping you because I'm interested <laughs> about the pieces of it. So you and your dad been buying on the side and... So my dad calls me in 2017. He's like, hey, I think I'm going to buy some Bitcoin. All right, mind you, at this time, he's early 80s. He does read technology blogs every day, but I'm like, you idiot. Why would you buy this, this stupid asset that's backed by air? There's nothing there. And it's like $1,000. In 2017, yeah. yeah. Whoops. Like, like, side note, guys, don't take investment advice from me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so he's like, you know, yeah, you're right. He unfortunately did not invest in Bitcoin on, on my advice. He's, okay, yeah, you're, you're right. But man, I wish we could create some token backed by farmland, to which I then again said, yeah, tokens are a fad. I think that's really dumb, dad. You know, that's never going to work. Again, whoops. What does fungible even mean? Come on. (laughs) But it it started really kicking around this idea of fractionalization and and securitization. And in public markets, the IPO process of, of taking a big asset and breaking it into small pieces so that regular investors can access it, that was the norm. In private markets, it was incredibly difficult due to regulation. The Jobs Act had been passed in 2012. It had been formalized the ensuing years. So there was finally this opportunity to take these million-dollar assets rather than billion-dollar assets, million-dollar assets, and break them up and, and make them more approachable. How did you know about that? Uh, lawyers. So, you know, my, my dad and I had talked about it. And I'd seen a few websites offering these fractional investments. So, well, how on earth are they doing that? And so luckily I have a, a great friend here in Fayetteville, Jason Bramlett. Uh, so called and said, hey, can you help me figure this out? So, we, we started digging in. And then last, before we go to the break, the name Acre Trader then. So now you have this idea. You know that you can fractionalize these farmland properties. How do you get the name? So I do like process. Uh, and so I, I went through this really formal process and built out this spreadsheet. I tried to get to 100 names. I did not get there. And I got to, oh, my God, every one of these names is a terrible idea. Like, like, like I... I've showed it to two people that I work with and I will never show it to anyone else again because they make fun of me all the time uh, and about how poor my, my creativity with names is. So I bought a couple of names, like 15 bucks online, and there was this one acre trader that I was just really obsessed with, but it was $1,200. And this was really eating at me. Like Again, this idea of like, I'm going to pay you for nothing? You just bought this thing for 15 bucks and you're going to sell it to me for... 1500 or 1200 That's crazy. And, and so I, I took great offense to it. I slept on it a bunch. Luckily, I was working with one of the advisors to our business today, and I told him the story and showed him the other domain names. And he's, again, it's like, you idiot, just pony up and buy the name. So thank goodness I did that. I did try to make it back in other places. Uh, so our logo, uh, the logo that we use today was designed for either $15 or $18 on Fiverr. Really? So I got on some outsourcing The awesome website. Acre Trader logo is a Fiverr logo. That is correct. Fiverr's been a sponsor of this podcast. Hey. So, yes, there it is, an endorsement from Carter. <laughs> Fantastic. Coming up later, second half of this interview, we're going to dive into the early days of Acre Trader. How did things run at the beginning? Getting that first investor, building confidence, and then... Scaling the company, that's all coming up when we come right back. 
I'm excited to announce our podcast show is part of this year's Dell Technologies Small Business Virtual Conference that kicked off May 10th. Small businesses are ready to thrive again and looking for resources to rise to the challenge. That's why Dell Technologies has assembled an all-star lineup of podcasters for the third year in a row to create a virtual conference to share advice and inspiration for small businesses. Whether you're still working remotely or back together again, let Dell Technologies help safeguard your business with modern devices in Windows 11 Pro. Search Dell Technologies Small Business Podference on odyssey.com, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts starting May 10th. And if you missed it, be sure to download our custom episodes that aired May 12th and May 20th. Welcome back. So in the first half of this live interview in Fayetteville, Arkansas, Carter shared with us how he was an excellent student. He was a stalker of a particular woman. And uh, what else did we learn about he goes cheap on his logo? No, it's probably none of what we learned. I think we learned very much about the power of having good people around you, of riffing, of creativity. And now let's talk about Acre Trader in the very beginning, Carter, because now you have this idea, you, you have this company, you're ready to launch it. Did you do what a lot of people did? You've been in San Francisco, you're very close to Silicon Valley then. This is going to be a fintech company. Did you go out and find a bunch of people to back the company? Did you find uh, investors? Initially, no. I, I was lucky enough to be able to fund the initial MVP, minimum viable product, right? So the early tech I, I built at night and uh, hired a team to help build that. You had learned about minimum viable product, how? The internet. <laughs> you know, hey, I have this idea. I want to build a technology. And just uh, then, then calling around to tech CEOs and folks I knew in that, in that world and asking, like, what next? Yeah. So what did the minimum viable product look like? <laughs> it was hideous, of course. <laughs> it was a functional website that told people what we did. Uh, and allowed you to come on and click through and, and uh, start an investment. You could not actually finish the investment, but what we were looking for was signals that people were actually going to come in and, yeah. and use it to, to invest. So, so somebody would come in, they give you some information, then you would maybe call the person or send them something afterwards? That's right. So it actually pre-minimum viable product, uh, ran a bunch of surveys and went out and ran surveys to see, like, do people actually care if we build this? Then we built it. And people did care. They were like, we got tons of really, really positive feedback. So at that moment, it was, all right, let's do the wild thing and, and quit work and move to Arkansas to start a tech company. So once you had the minimum viable product, how many investors did you have when you decided to quit your job? Zero. None. What, were you married yet? Yes, uh, with two children, one, one baby. And, and what did your spouse say when you said, hey, I'm quitting my job and uh, I've got this company that has no money coming in, let's move? Lucky for me, she's a lot cooler than I am. So she was completely unshaken. She thought it was a great idea. Fantastic. When you found all this interest in Acre Trader, a lot of people very interested in buying farmland. That's still not an investor, though. Tell me how long it took to get the first investor, and you got to remember that moment. A really, really long time. It and, did. And it was, it was frightening, right? So, Oh, this, people love this thing. And they did, right? People were like, wow, I get to invest in the heartland and bring money into rural communities and support farmers. This is a 
great idea. I want to play a part in this. And you guys seem like you're, you know, actually have this figured out. And some great investment, let me phrase that, a great investment offering. We had one farm on the website. Yeah. And so people absolutely loved it. And we're like, great. It's so nice to meet you. You know, the investment minimum is at this time like $1,000. You're asking for 1000 bucks. Yeah. And they'd be like, oh, yeah, I'll put in $10,000. This is great. And then two days go by, and then you go into your CRM, you call them up. Hey, uh, you know, you're still interested in investing. You, you're, uh, and they would say, remind me again, uh, how old is your company? Like, <clears throat> six months. <clears throat> and where are you guys located? Arkansas? You can imagine, e- even today, as a well-funded business, this notion of, we just met on the internet, and I'm going to give you a whole bunch of money yeah. to some yokels in Arkansas was a pretty difficult value proposition for those, those extremely early adopters. No one wanted to be the first across the line. How many, how many people were working for the company at this time? Eight, nine, uh, a number. Like I, I had, at this point, built the MVP, showed the interest, then hired a few folks, then went out and started raising some capital. So we Got it. Okay, we, so you did get some capital by this time. That's correct. So at, at uh, six people on the team went out and was like, all right, we have a product now. We've got good product market fit, at least according to what we're being told by these customers and all this feedback we have. Uh, so we went out and raised, raised some money. How hard is that getting funding? Brutal. It's absolutely awful. You, know, you walk in like, I have the best idea in the whole world. And all of you are going to be super rich for investing in this company. And uh, just about everyone says no. And unfortunately, then a lot of people won't tell you no. And that's the worst thing they can do, right, is just drag you along. and and Because uh, they're just wasting your time. Yeah, and, and, and worse, like teasing you, right? Yeah. Uh, versus we find it, and still today, we, we always ask anybody that's interested in the business or investing in farmland, hey, if you end up not being interested in this, we would love to know why. We want to improve as a business uh, and improve our product. And so please help us. There's competing thoughts about where you go to first for funding for your new company. If you go to friends and family first, do you go to venture capitalists first? Do you look online at angels? I bet, where did you go first? All of them. All. Yeah, I think, you know, build a spreadsheet and put every name I knew in there, that anybody that had any, any capital themselves, uh, and then asked my friends that were in venture capital to make introductions. And so, yeah, chased every intro and then asked each one of those people, who else should I be speaking to? Who were some of the early adopters? Maybe not by name, but were they friends and family or were they venture capitalists? They were more uh, friends. So, so folks that ran larger tech companies. Do you find that it's a little like Shark Tank where they're asking for a bigger piece of the company all the time? No. No, I, I was really surprised at even today, at just how friendly term sheets are, how friendly the investors in our business are, and how like all of them are well-intentioned. They, they want the company to succeed. And I think there, there's a surprising, I, I was surprised by this myself, but the prevailing school of thought is like, make the pie bigger. Yeah. Don't get in here and elbow with sharp elbows. And sharp elbows to take a bigger slice or to get these aggressive terms. It does help that the funding environment uh, for technology startups is one of the best of our lifetimes. Did you go to any of the, um, what's, what's the big show where people go and pitch in fintech every year? I don't know. It's, uh, oh, it's right on the top of my head. TechCrunch or something? They have two of them. They have one on the East Coast, one on the West Coast, and people go up and make like a five-minute pitch. Techstars? Yeah, that's not the one that I'm thinking of. But did you do any of those? Did you do any of these pitch competitions? I did a couple and found them to be pretty, pretty awful. <laughs> yeah. 
So now you have six people working for the company. Your company has a burn rate, obviously. I'm betting you know every day exactly what that number is. It's got to be a number that just you've seared into your brain. <laughs> Tell me about when somebody finally gave you money. When somebody finally, not, not invested in the company, but they invested in farmland. I remember the day well. Uh, this was in the spring of 2019. And we had been out you know, some people, five, six calls in learning about the business and about us and building trust with them. And that was really this big barrier was, was trust and no one wanted to be the first. And then this guy who we had spoken to once, who was super nice, and again, the investment minimum was $1,000. And uh, he came in and put in 50, 50,000. $50,000. Yeah. And to say that we were screaming and, and jumping up and down, like, oh my God, it's actually a company now. It was a, it was a big day. That's fantastic. So you guys are going crazy because you have a $50,000 per person give you 50 times what you'd originally asked for. That's correct. Did that open up a floodgate like you were hoping now that you've got the first one? No. <laughs> it, it began to move the flywheel, right? So we're, we're a two-sided marketplace business. There's, there's real network effects between finding farms and finding investment capital or finding farmers that are growing and finding investment capital to, to support them by buying land. And that uh, was the first sort of like notch, right? Like you're, you're making a snowball and you, you scoot it along and then it just stops. And so then this is Herculean effort to move it just another inch. Uh, then it stops. And there was no inertia within the business. So, so no, that the following six months was still a, an absolute knife fight every day when we came to work of, of just trying to get this flywheel moving. Yeah, and I'm doing the math it just in my head. You know, I don't know an asset manager that says, obviously, you guys are really excited about a $50,000 investment, but there's no asset manager out there that says you can run a company on a $50,000 <laughs> investment. Tell me how long it did finally take it to start rolling. We, we had green shoots along the way, right? So it's not as if every day was bad. It was, it was, it was working with amazing people. They were brilliant. We were all uh, working every hour of every day to continue to build the technology, the content, and ultimately to build trust, right? If the, the barrier to our business, we're dealing with incredibly important things to people, their money and their land. And, and so trust was the big thing to get over. So how can we attack this every day is education. So just being wide open about who we are, what we're up to, what we're building. And uh, uh, so you really became more of a teacher. Your pitch was teaching people. No question. We had to evangelize the asset class for, for many of the customers that were coming in. And so providing tons and tons of written content and white papers and, and unbiased information, right? Ma maintaining a neutral professional tone while, while doing so. At the same time, I got to imagine once again, to be able to scale that teaching, there's only so many of you. How did you use technology to make that teaching happen more quickly? How to scale your ability to talk to more people more quickly? CRM is the easy, easy answer there. So we, we used HubSpot and it, it, it's unbelievable, right? So whether it's HubSpot or Asana, the tools available to a company of our size today versus just 10 years ago are, are absolutely night and day. And so we were able to stand up a very scalable business model very fast because of technology enablement. Did you ever think about search engine optimization and getting incoming traffic coming in? We, we did a ton. Uh, we, we spent a lot of a lot of those early days thinking about, about SEOs. Is that effective though? Because, you know, when you and I first talk, you're like, nobody's thinking about this asset class. So there can't be a ton of people on Google or Bing who are typing in, how do I get rich on farmland? 
That's right. So we, we uh, went to lots of third parties as well and said, hey, we'll write for your blog. We'll put content on your website about what we're up to and, and help drive traffic to you. And for us, it gave a, a link back, which also helps your search engine optimization. You guys came on Stacking Benjamins and educated our audience. That's right. In the early days. That was fun. So our, our, one of our first podcasts, if not the first one. It was, was it really? Yeah. <laughs> that, that was super fun. You came across like this is, well, exactly like you do now. Just confident, put together, know the asset class, very comfortable. Under the hood, though, at that time, a little bit shakier than Joe thought it was. <laughs> no, I think we, we were comfortable. And again, it was hard, but we were very comfortable that this was a thing, that this is a business that was going to, we were going to will the damn thing to succeed, but, but ultimately it was going to succeed uh, because there was so much interest out there and because we had built a rare business model. It was a win-win. It was a win for farmers to grow their business by us buying land alongside them. And it was a win for the investors to get access to this new asset class. Tell me about, though, there must have been some days when you come home to your family and you're thinking, we just got to let this go. <laughs> yeah, there were. You know, I think there were a lot of those days. Uh, you know, we got to let this go, maybe a little harsh, but Oh no, you know, I've done something wrong or oh no, I broke the website again. Those were painful days. But yeah, like as with any venture, like I still have tons of terrible days today. It's just, it's like having a child, right? Where the old saying is the days are long, but the weeks are short, right? And in business and building a business, it's the same thing. Like we have really challenging days, but we step back and look, look up and go over the last one week or the last one month. Oh my God, look at the tremendous progress we've made. That's funny. I had a mentor tell me recently that you need to live in the gain, not in the gap. And what they meant by that was we're always looking at the horizon and thinking, man, I want to reach that. But if you play that game, you're always going to lose. Instead, what you're saying is what my mentor said, look back and go, look at the progress we made. We're moving. And then, and then put your head down and grind. <laughs> yeah. It. Yeah. For people that are in that spot right now, what would you tell them about those dark days and maybe some advice about how you got through them? What we're just talking about is, is stepping back and, and being proud of what you've done and acknowledging, you know, certainly acknowledging the, the problems, right? And, and ultimately, you've got to compartmentalize. So, all right, there are these risks and there are these issues and there are these concerns. What can I do to address them? Because worrying does nothing. But instead, all right, well, I've got this risk and I'm going to go prioritize these three things that I can fight back against that with. And always having those top two or three priorities every day when you come into work to make sure you go do everything you can to fight against that risk. Action over worry. There you go. Any stories of meetings that were pivotal, big investor meetings, big pitches that you can think of, big milestones along the way, Carter, where you went, wow, we just, there's, do you remember the movie Wall Street? And Bud Fox walks out of this meeting with Gordon Gecko, or he's walking into the meeting, he's looking himself in the mirror, and he says, there's a few big moments in life, this is one of them. What are a couple of those big moments in Carter's Acre Trader life? I'm not sure any of them are as, as glorious or dirty as that movie. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, on the specific to the investor question, uh, RZC is a fund... Uh, owned by a few members of the Walton family here locally, and we had been speaking with them for a long time. We had a few other investors fall through, actually, that were going to invest in our, our seed round. And I can remember the specific church I was near in the middle of nowhere, Arkansas, when I got the phone call. Uh, I was like, honey, hit the brakes and pull over. I hopped out of the car and took this call, and uh, they confirmed that they were going to invest. That was, and they're investing. That was, a, that was a big day. Perhaps the 
most memorable moment is, uh, for investors was actually, though, investors in, the, in farms. This was just post-COVID lockdown, and I had a tent in the front yard. I was going to camp with my girls outside. Uh, um, we just got a new tent, wanted to test it out. So, so the tent's in the front yard. We put this new farm up, and it was uh, a little over a million dollars. And to that point, we had done maybe one or two six-figure days. Okay. Uh, and this is kind of like April, post-COVID, April 2020. So the world's like, all right, we're not all going to die tomorrow. We should, yeah. maybe, we should maybe think about asset allocation or alternative assets or yeah. whatever that may be. Because the stock market at that time is not doing well at all. It was not pretty. Yeah. Uh, so we put this farm up and it, the entire thing sold that afternoon. So over a million dollars. That was the moment. The moment of the business. Was, oh my gosh, this is incredible. And people were emailing us thanking us. You know, thank you so much for providing this opportunity to, to be involved and to support this. In this case, it was this uh, organic apple grower in Washington uh, Jim, who we, we love. And so it was just this wildly positive moment. And I'm like, oh, no, I need to go. And we're drinking and celebrating on, over Zoom. <laughs> like, oh, right, I have to go hang out in the tent with the girls. And so I'm out in the tent, like, drinking bourbon, writing this, <laughs> writing this email to our user base, uh, you know, saying thank you for making this record day. And I've often found, by the way, the email first, bourbon second is better than the other way around. <laughs> that's, that's a decent rule of thumb. <laughs> I've unfortunately done it the other way once or twice, and that, that wasn't good. That's one of Joe's early lessons. So <laughs> I'll share that with you. Um, let's talk about COVID for a second, because I know that COVID for Acre Trader was really a, that, that was kind of a pivotal time and a big change for the company. It was. It's, uh, th- there's pros and cons to market volatility. Uh, certainly the reevaluation of what's in one's portfolio comes along with, with volatility. We're, we're seeing that right now in our business where we're not sure it's, we're a counter-cyclical company, but uh, anytime there's real movements, people look around and, and think, man, maybe I should consider other, other asset classes. So COVID for us was a positive, we think, was a net positive. But the bigger, far more impactful thing was actually like our team. And I, I just get to work with brilliant people every day. And uh, we all went home and were like, all right, we're bored. <laughs> what can we work on and, and really get out there and help push? And so we began putting out tons more content and educational webinars. And This is where, by the way, you had to rely on technology. Because now you go from an office where you're all together, Carter, to you can't meet. That's right. We really doubled down. We, we absolutely worked our butts off and said, we're going to turn this terrible, terrible moment in time into an opportunity for our company. And uh, I think that the spirit of the folks I work with is what ultimately pushed that through and turned it into a big success for us. That couldn't have been your initial reaction. I mean, I'm sure at first you thought what everybody else thought, this is going to kill our company. We did. <laughs> we were, I was talking about this investment round a moment ago, our, our seed capital round. Uh, we raised a little over $3 million dollars. That was closing on a Friday. It's supposed to close Friday morning. About Thursday is when the world's collapsing. This is March of 2020. Oh, no. The world's collapsing, completely falling apart. Friday, we're like, oh, my God, we all got to pack our bags and go home to work from home from here on out. And then the wire didn't come. And then there was this legal issue. And Elise, our general counsel, who is here, almost killed me uh, for my neuroses that, that one day. Um, <laughs> I can't ab- imagine the amount of pacing you're doing. Absolute, utter panic of this isn't going to happen. And if the wire doesn't cross today, it may never cross. And the bank, uh, local banks and friends here at Signature Bank, kept the uh, lanes open for us. And we were able to get the wire crossed past wire hours. Uh, thank God. And, but yeah, that was, a, that was a wild moment. Wow. Let's talk about the, the future Acre Trader, I know I was just looking online and I saw, I saw not farmland, 
but I saw a reference to, to woods, to forestry. That's right. We like land. So we started with row crops in the Midwest and the Delta here. We then expanded out to permanent crops. So those are things you grow on trees, usually, or vines, almonds, pistachios, blueberries, wine occasionally, wine grapes. Then after that, we expanded into Australia late last year. So as our, our first several international investments, we've invested, uh, I think, a little over $30 million in Australian farms now. And Timber's next. And we're, we're not through. We're going to continue to expand product offerings and allow folks to gain more access to, to differentiated and, and unique investment products. All still natural resources. Land, natural resources. That's, that's the thing that we love. Yeah. What excites you about the future? Probably break that into two, two parts. Uh, the, the most exciting thing about work every day is, is the people I work with. I just get to work with absolutely amazing, amazing people. And we're very fortunate that we have a great product and we have a huge market. And so the thing that's going to define our success is the people I get to work next to every, every day. And by far and away, as I, th- as I think out for the coming years, that's the most exciting thing is that I am positive with this group of folks we can solve any problem and we can build this business to be something truly changing, life-changing for the people we, we work with. I want to end with a, uh, with a story about a farmer because you know, I was reading in Esquire magazine in an interview with uh, John Mellencamp talking about how so many people don't understand the plight of the American farmer and really where they're at. And what you do has a big role in helping some of these farmers. Can you tell us a story of maybe one farmer you've been able to help because of the work that you do with AcreTrader? Thank you for asking that. That was funny enough, uh, the other part of my answer, what, what I'm excited about is helping farmers and, and helping grow businesses in rural America. The story that would come to mind in this moment is and we're, we work with farmers again in I think 15 states and one other country. I, this would be Matt in Minnesota. Uh, Matt is a, a an organic grower there actually, so we, we do some organic investments. And Matt wants to grow his business, but Matt doesn't have three million dollars to buy the parcel next door to go grow his business, much less uh, than some of the capital necessary to make it through the transition years. You can't just flip a switch. You've got to transition for three years from conventional to organic. Uh, and so we've met Matt. He's a really, really brilliant farmer, and, and we were able to work with him. And he identified a parcel and said, hey, I would like to buy this and work with you guys to lease it. So we did that with him, and we did that with him again. And the second time, he was actually able to also invest in that alongside us. Uh, so we're, and we have stories like that all over the country, and we're really, really proud that we get to work with amazing American farmers. People work their butts off and, and run businesses. And that's, yeah, that's the thing that really... We all get to go to bed happy about every night. Carter Malloy, everybody. Thank you, Joe. That's going to do it here from Fayetteville, Arkansas. Thank you so much to all of you in the audience. Thank you. Thanks to the Acre Trader team for helping us put this together. Doug, my friend, you got it from here, man. What should we have learned today? So what should we have learned today? First, thinking about building a company, build a foundation, and work through adversity. While you can't predict what's going to happen next, you can plan ahead and give yourself options when the inevitable lean times happen. Second, when you build your company, technology will pave a much easier pathway to success. Think, is there an automation that can make this happen more easily? But the big lesson? Don't yell woo pig suey in a crowded library in Fayetteville. While watching librarians raise their arms slowly in unison is a blast that 
you're in trouble look is way too similar to Joe's mom's you're washing windows, Doug. Again, way too close. Big thanks to Carter Malloy for joining us. You'll find more on AcreTrader at AcreTrader.com. Also, big thanks to our studio audience. You're a great-looking group of people here in Northwest Arkansas. And thanks to whoever built me this little booth under the table so you can only hear my voice. Hey, Joe, can I come out now? This show is the property of SB Podcasts, LLC, copyright 2022 and is created by Joe Salcihai. Our producer is Karen Repine. The show is written by the brilliant Paulette Perhatch with help from Joe, me, and Doc G from the Earn and Invest podcast. After you listen to our show, check out the 201 Deep Dives written by our website manager and blog editor, Brooke Miller. You'll find the 411 on all things money at the 201. Just go to stackingbenjamins.com slash 201. Once we bottle up all this goodness, we ship it to our engineer, the amazing Steve Stewart. Steve helps the rest of our team sound nearly as good as I do right now. Want to chat with friends about the show later? Mom's friend Gertrude is our social media coordinator and the room mother in our Facebook group called The Basement. So, say hello when you see us posting online. Here's a weird fact. Both she and Tina Eichenberg are never in the same room at the same time. To join all the basement fun with other stackers, type stackingbenjamins.com basement. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and we'll see you next time back here at The Stacking Benjamin Show. Not only should you not take advice from these dorks, don't take advice from people you don't know. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any financial decisions, speak with a real financial advisor. we did that live welcome to the after show what, what were we doing just that was that was really weird this is this is the part of the show that doesn't exist <laughs> if you have to talk about the well the first rule of after shows we don't talk about the after show Fayetteville all right if you have to we've had people Carter from time to time that have had to tell friends about it you can say dessert right this is the part of the show where we no longer talk about Acre Trader. Maybe we do talk about Acre Trader, but we talk about random stuff that Carter and I want to talk about for, I don't know, four or five more hours? For the after show. <laughs> yeah, for you just, told me to come up with something seconds. funny about farmers earlier. And uh, Garrett, our COO, my partner in crime, who I think is up here somewhere, not all farmers would find my personality to be endearing, I guess. You know, like a fast talking technology guy. Uh, Garrett is uh, much more uh, attuned to that, that world. He's 
35 and looks much older. He dresses like my 88-year-old dad. Um, 35 going on 88? Yeah, he, like, he carries a handkerchief and a pocket knife everywhere he goes. You know? It's like a real, <laughs> a real man of the land. And so it sounds like you guys do a game of good cop, bad cop sometimes then <laughs> or, or young cop, old cop. Yeah. Well, in this case, I'm like, Garrett, I got to go. I know farmers. I know farmers, dude. Come, come with me. We're going to go meet this farmer that I know who's, who is a, a large and successful farmer. So we go to this steak restaurant. The, the guy's like, we're going to go to the steakhouse for lunch. We're like, cool. I guess we'll go get a salad or something. So we sit down. He shows up, takes a call immediately at this t- table of three of us and then doesn't stay on the phone for like, 30 seconds, stays on the phone for most of this entire time. You're kidding me. So let's call it like nine minutes, like, like, like a long, long, long time. So Garrett and I are like, well, I guess we'll get ready and order the salad, you know, and this person comes around, waitress comes around, and he's, uh, hey, hey uh, yeah, we're going to have the uh, porterhouse medium rare. All right, looks like we're having a porterhouse, Garrett. This guy ordered for us. And then gets back on the phone. So they finally bring the, the porterhouse around, and uh, this is this huge steak, right? Yeah, monster actually, steak. And it's two pieces. It's a, a New York strip on one side and a filet, the really good stuff, on yeah. the other uh, the other side of the bone. And so they, at this restaurant, they cut the steak up into you know, small slices, smaller slices. So this guy grabs the tongs and serves himself the entire filet, <laughs> the, the coveted meat, you know, the piece you really want, and then serves us... The, the junk, the dog food, <laughs> the, on, the relative, on a relative basis, right? The tough stuff. And we, like, it's just this moment of, oh, my God, we, we are just absolutely getting dominated. We, he paid. He, he did pay. And we left. And it's like, I don't, I'm sorry. I was telling Gary, I was like, I'm not sure what just happened. But we definitely lost. Like, like that guy won. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Somebody claiming their territory right from the beginning. Yeah. I was surprised you didn't come over to, now that you learned your lesson, and grab this mic and just take over the podcast. <laughs> Well, Stackers, the show might be over, but the celebrations are just beginning because it is Military Appreciation Month that I want to celebrate people like my brother-in-law, Eric, who is such a giving person. Eric will do just anything for you. And as a Marine, you can see that his time in the military taught him to be a guy who gives to his community, gives to his family, and is always there when you need them. This Military Appreciation Month, Navy Federal Credit Union wants to celebrate members like Eric who go above and beyond. Navy Federal offers member-only exclusive rates, discounts, and tools to empower their members and help them reach their goals. Navy Federal's employees are part of the community they serve. Many of them are military family members, reservists, or veterans, and all branches of the military, veterans, DOD employees, and their families are eligible for Navy Federal membership. In fact, there are so many resources on the Navy Federal website, resources like Best Cities After Service to help veterans transition to civilian life and Best Careers for Military Spouses to support military families. Visit NavyFederal.org celebrate and you'll see all of their Military Appreciation Month offers and other Navy Federal offers. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, Equal Housing Lender.